So this episode is going to hurt. I say hurt because it directly deals with one of the most sensitive issues that plagues us as Americans today. I hurt even as I write this intro in that I am inadvertently challenging myself and I don't like it. Honestly, God has lowered the boom and he is calling me to rethink some things. Hey, it's Andy and this is the 35th episode of BNP, Biblical Narratives Podcast. Biblical detail, historical context that puts you right in the action. With Paul and Barnabas' long walk some 150 miles away from the coastal city of Perga to the inland city of Antioch Pisidia, much of their time spent would be in a dialogue back and forth between them, trying to piece together their stories as they relate to the bigger story and plan of God throughout history. Now, as we continue to address the Davidic Covenant in the coming weeks, I want to spend time fleshing out a key Old Testament passage found in Psalm 2. Peter attributes this psalm to David in Acts chapter 4, verse 25 and 26 for good reason. This is a key passage of hope that speaks to the chosen one of God who will reign the world from his throne and usher in the ultimate rule of the kingdom of heaven. How is this going to hurt, you ask? Well, you'll find out soon enough. So with that, let's get started. Twisting alongside the Kestros River, the paved Roman road offers Paul and Barnabas some level of civility. Hiking up a long and fairly steep incline, Barnabas looks over at Paul, who also appears to be winded. So remind me again who picked our destination? This gets a brief laugh from Paul who says, If I wasn't breathing so hard, I would laugh more. Peering ahead, he offers, The good news is that Sagalassos isn't too far away from the other side of this pass. Hopefully, we'll come across another Jewish community there. Nearing the pass, the two take in the partial view of a canyon between them and the snow-capped mountain ridge on the other side. Catching their breath at the pass, Barnabas stops to turn around and take in the forested valleys on either side of the pass. Galatia is God's country. That it is, Paul agrees, though we should keep moving. It's not good to be spotted if we can help it. Oh, Barnabas asks, what do you mean? While it's beautiful to look at, the road isn't policed much. Thieves make their livings here, Paul says. Good thing we don't have much to offer, Barnabas says with a laugh. (laughs) Paul agrees. Though, for the less than scrupulous thieves, your enslavement might fetch a good price. Ah, Barnabas says as the moment of realization strikes him. Well, shall we get moving then? As the road continues upward, Barnabas says, So, I was hoping for a little relief here. Paul laughs and asks, Didn't I mention that Sagalassos is near the top of a mountain? Shooting him a look of contempt, Barnabas says, No, you didn't mention that little piece of news. Realizing downhill walking is an unlikely option anytime soon, Barnabas adjusts his attitude and says, You know your history of this area, right? A little, Paul responds. Galatia is quite a bit different than the cities along the coast. Maybe when we get to Antioch City, we'll see some similarities to that of Perga, but along the way, we're likely to run across some highlanders. These folks tend to be a little less inclined to be trusting of us outsiders. The two keep walking when Barnabas asks, Refresh my memory here. 
The Seleucids sought to dominate this area, right? Paul smiles at the opportunity to share. After Alexander the Great was poisoned and killed in Babylon, his four appointed and proven generals went back to their respective homelands and made their claims, each having large families with dynastic ambitions. From there, the land-grabbing expansion was on, and some were better at this than others. Messi doesn't even begin to explain what happened here. Friendships faded and alliances turned sour. Political winds changed as frequently as the weather, so it wasn't uncommon for the common people here to switch sides between Lysimachus and the Seleucids. Even the Ptolemaic kingdom became involved. Paul shakes his head at the idea and says, It's as if a family would watch an army march through their town, and from the sidelines, they would ask one another, Hey, which army is that, Dad? And the dad would reply, Hmm, what time is it? Barnabas laughs at this and says, Wow, when we thought we had it bad. Paul continues, Yeah, I'm not sure who had it worse. All to say, peace was nowhere to be found until Rome moved in some 200 years later. Taking it all in, Barnabas says, Is it me, or does pretty much every king go by the same playbook? Laughing at this observation, Paul then gets quiet while pondering this. Why do the kings rage against God and one another? I'm sorry, Barnabas says. Paul responds, Your observation is spot on. King David had much to say about this in one of his psalms. Okay, Mr. Lawyer, refresh my memory, Barnabas teases. Playing the part, Paul laughs and responds in character. Well, sir, Paul clears his throat and recites, Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. Hey, that's pretty good oratory, Barnabas says. I never had one lesson, Paul replies with a smile. Taking a moment to think things through, Barnabas finally starts to process aloud. David was right. As I think about this, I can't think of a single king who hasn't sought to expand his own kingdom at some point during his reign. Looking over at Paul, he asks, Can you? Many weren't successful, Paul says. Yeah, but that doesn't mean they didn't want to or didn't try, Barnabas responds. True, Paul says. A king's thirst to expand his rule has seemed to be a primary goal. Why is that, Barnabas asks. Why does that seem to be a priority? The two pick up their pace as the road finally begins to decline into the valley. Pointing to the base of a distant mountain, Paul announces, Sagalassos. Barnabas peers to take in an elevated town nestled at the base of the jagged peak rising behind it. We still have a ways to go, don't we? Yep, Paul replies. Looking over at Paul, Barnabas awaits his answer. Well, realizing the subject has been changed, Paul says, Oh, oh, yeah, why do kings wish to expand their kingdoms? Was that the question? Feigning exasperation, Barnabas responds, Yes, that was the question. He then pushes Paul for teasing him. Okay, okay, Paul laughs. Why do kings wage war? Yes, to expand their kingdoms. Paul begins to take inventory. Let's see. Limited resources? Probably. Ego-driven? Definitely. 
want to build dynasties, allowing their sons to carry on what they started, yeah, that would be a goal too. Want to be remembered for their contributions, Barnabas adds. Yeah, Paul replies. They would definitely wish to be remembered for the marks they made, though some would be remembered in quite a negative light. Nodding his head, Barnabas says, way too many of those, yes, he pauses to think more. Kind of going along those lines, they had something to prove to themselves, to others. That's true, Paul replies. Whether they grew up in a king's home as the next in line to take the throne, or maybe they seized it for themselves at the expense of another, those vying to be king always had something to prove. Barnabas ponders, The only exceptions to that were those who might have been too young to understand all of that. Paul interrupts, like King Josh. Yeah, like Josh, Barnabas echoes. Wasn't he like seven, Paul responds. Jehoiada the priest had him anointed as king in a well-played maneuver to get rid of Athaliah, the manic queen and, and mother of King Ahaziah. When he died, she was bent on killing all of the royal line of David. So, King Ahaziah's sister hid Joash in the temple for some like six years before they proclaimed him as king. Once coronated, they then killed Athaliah, the queen. I'm impressed that you remember that, Barnabas says. Oh, man. (laughs) This time in Judah's and Israel's divided history was really a dark time. Baal worship had become the norm under King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Remember Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal? That was during this time, Paul reflects further. Ahab's kingship led Israel far away from the covenant they had made with God, further than just about any other king of Israel. Ahab had kids, and of course, they sought to continue what their dad started. So, God sent Jehu to clean things up a bit. Barnabas processes this and asks, Hey, have you noticed that once a king comes into power, one of his ultimate goals is to hold on to his power at all costs? He pauses to let this sink in. What is so enjoyable about being in power? What's so enjoyable, Paul asks with a measure of incredulity, making you do things at my command for my purposes, and you ask what's so enjoyable? Barnabas shrugs. I guess I never understood it. But you have, haven't you? That's right. You know exactly what it feels like. Let's see, Paul says. Privileged living conditions nice quality of lifestyle, shaping the behavior and norms of a people, immediate respect that comes with position, not being told no by any of your subordinates. The list continues, Paul smiles. No, I I get it, Barnabas laughs. You get to live how you wish to live, and you command others to do the same. But just because you get to call the shots doesn't mean people really respect or love you. Oh, heavens no, Paul responds. But when you're in a position of power, you become blinded to the perceptions of your people. You don't care about how they feel. Not really. Your care is about what resources they have to function productively in life. Your care is to keep your kingdom's economy headed in the right direction, so you do what is needed to make sure that happens, even if it means waging war against others or your own people. Except for the war part, that sounds well-intended, right? Barnabas asks. Paul nods. Yes, providing for your people is a noteworthy goal, but there's something else happening here. Something deeper. 
Even the efforts taken to ensure their well-being ultimately plays a role in the larger picture of suiting your own personal goals. They are but a cog in your machine, merely functioning to serve your own ambitions. Where things go sour is when they can no longer serve your purposes as king. Why? Because they are no longer productive members of your society. Taking in the panoramic view of a timberless mountain range, Barnabas processes all of this. Here's the other thing, and this applies to kings or just about anybody. Paul continues, How much is enough? When do you stop seeking to make lifestyle improvements? When do you stop searching to acquire more? You know, lifestyle is a funny thing. When gone unchecked, we always want more, even if it comes at the expense of others. Okay. I see where you're heading with this, Barnabas says. You're saying lifestyle can become an idol, a false god. Paul touches his nose. Spot on. Jesus taught a different approach, right? Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat, rust destroys, or thieves break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, so is your desire. So don't worry about preserving for yourself. Instead, seek the kingdom of heaven and let God take care of your needs. Paul continues, Peter shared a story about a guy who climbed up a fig tree next to the road in order to get a view of Jesus coming by. I forget his name, though. Zacchaeus, Barnabas says. That's right, Zacchaeus, Paul echoes. Remember the story? There were so many people along the side of the road that Zacchaeus climbed the tree to get a view. Why would anyone of means do that unless they were hungry for something different? So when Jesus called him by name out of the tree to join him, Zacchaeus must have been surprised by this. After eating with him, Jesus challenged Zacchaeus to give a large part of his wealth away. So he did. So what happened? Jesus called Zacchaeus a true son of Abraham because God got a hold of his heart. Zacchaeus placed God first. Stopping in the middle of the road, Paul then looks at Barnabas. I remember this was something you were challenged with as well, right? What do you mean, Barnabas asks. You yourself sold property and gave it to benefit the needs of other believers, Paul shares. You decided you didn't need the property and that it would be better used to help others in need. In doing as much, you demonstrated how you were seeking the kingdom of heaven first in your life. Not knowing what to say, Barnabas points to start them walking again. Remembering another story, Paul says, Forgive me if I'm pressing this issue too much, but I know Jesus pressed it when he called the rich man who built bigger storage barns for his excessive crop wealth a fool for doing so. Why? Not because the guy was aiming to build wealth, but because he saw it as an opportunity to serve himself with it. The rich man, or we might even say the king, wanted to sit back and do nothing for the rest of his life. What he didn't realize is that his life would be taken sooner than later, so his ambition for the good life would never be enjoyed. In other words, build wealth to benefit others, not yourself. Most kings don't think that way. Most people don't think that way. Others first is not how we function in our natural state. We strive to build our own kingdoms, not God's. So, Paul summarizes, when David points out how kings wage war against God, it's due to the fact that each one seeks to serve himself. 
his own ambitions. They refused to put God first, if there was any interest at all. So, when the Lord declares that he has placed his chosen future king on the throne of Jerusalem, a day is coming when this king will seek God's kingdom of heaven first and rightfully deal with all of the self-serving kings and nations upon the earth. God's regal son, the rightful king of the world, will ensure God comes first. And those who align themselves with this rightful king will take joy in his rule. Paul thinks a little bit more. So why will the kings rage and try to remove God's chosen king from power? It's because God will no longer allow them to put their self-serving wants first. Matthew 20, 25-28, Jesus said it this way, guys. You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, to give his life as a ransom for many. And by doing this, he's placing God's kingdom first. Paul and Barnabas dialogue about the ever-spiraling turbulence of kings and kingdoms. This is a never-ending quest set up by kings to make a name for themselves. Here's the thing. Isn't this our preoccupation? Make a little bit more, build a little bit more? Look, I'm beyond convicted even as I write this. I'm really no different than the kings or wealthy who seek to build their own kingdoms. I may not be ruling over anyone, but my ambitions are to build personal wealth and long-term assets. The bigger question to consider is this. Why am I building more and more wealth? Is it to benefit myself, or like Barnabas, do I aim to give it away? I know what I want to say here, but I'm probably in denial. Truth? I want a better lifestyle. I want to do more things to serve myself. Yeah, I do want to give more away, but perhaps not as much as the kingdom requires. What does the kingdom require? You're not going to like this, but here it goes. The kingdom of heaven requires me to give responsibly to others who have need so as to help them see the kingdom of heaven in me. Ouch. So what does this mean? Simply this. Seek the kingdom of heaven beyond all else. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and trust that God will give you everything you need. Jesus said those very words in Matthew 6.33. From a practical standpoint, let's think about it this way. I want to challenge you and myself to bump your giving up by 1% for the rest of 2019. Give 1% more to make a kingdom of heaven difference than you currently give and consider the following two ideas. Will you really see a difference in how this affects your lifestyle? Seriously, letting go of 1% shouldn't be that tough. Second, watch how God uses you to make a difference. Will God inspire you to give more once you've had a taste of giving a little bit more already? Once you get a taste of how God will use this 1% to enhance his kingdom, I hope that you will aim to give more and more with each passing year. Let me also say this. I don't want you to give it to us. 
I want you to give your 1% to those who are most in need. I can say that we're aiming to support these three organizations, one of which is local, two that are global in nature. Here's the local organization, James Storehouse. They are a local organization geared to help Ventura County foster youth. We get to come alongside of these folks in an effort to support those who have so little. Second, Global. Global Training Network, or GTN. They're an organization that trains indigenous pastors and leaders around the world with a vibrant and unique disciple-making approach. Or Help Bukasa. It's a school in Uganda set upon educating children without any means to benefit from a Christ-centered education. They will be tomorrow's leaders in the heart of Africa. Here's my takeaway. I hope you wrestle with this matter this week. I know V and I will, but I believe we're called to make a difference and it just might begin with a change of lifestyle and a change in our wealth. Guys, have a wonderful week and may you first seek the kingdom of heaven.